Father, you are everything to us, and uh, so is our Savior, Jesus Christ. You uh, proved your love by sending your Son to die for us, and he showed his obedience and submission to you in going to the cross. And it was because of that payment that we have life and favor and uh, peace and hope and eternal joy and so Lord we praise you for that and we want to express our love to you tonight uh, through our song and through our prayer and also through our reading and responding to your word so help us tonight as we look into your word would you open up our eyes to see the truth that is there and to respond to it with faith and obedience we pray in Jesus name Amen all right, we're in the middle of chapter 14, 1 Corinthians. And here in our passage tonight, Paul is continuing to support his point that he has been making in chapters 12 through 14, which is that love must be the fuel behind all of our spiritual gifts. If we're going to, to um, express our faith in the church through spiritual gifts, then we need the fuel of love. There's nothing more important than that. And so we can't edify without considering other people as more important than ourselves. If we think we are the most important, then um, we're not going to exercise our spiritual gifts with love. And therefore, when we come to assemble together, we need to make sure that we are doing everything for edification. This is a repeated statement that Paul has been making, and he's going to do it again here in our passage tonight, that it has to be for edification. That's others-focused. It's not just about me and what I get. It's about how others are actually growing up in the faith. And edification, as we saw last time, cannot happen apart from clarity. It cannot happen apart from intelligibility. If there's all sorts of nonsense going on and, and unintelligible, unintelligibility, um, then, then there's no edification. People can't be exhorted to do right. They can't be encouraged in the faith when things are, are um, unintelligible. And therefore, no matter how important you think your spiritual gift is, or any of us think our spiritual gift is, it has to be done with love and intelligibility. It has to be done with clarity. So Paul is building on that point by showing the purpose, the results, and the goals of speaking in tongues. And so he's going to continue this this kind of um, pet spiritual gift that they have. They love this spiritual gift. They exalt it, apparently. The church does exalt it over all the other gifts. And Paul is going to show that it's actually inferior to the gift of prophecy. And so what he's going to do here in this passage is carry these two spiritual gifts and show how speaking in tongues without an interpreter is much more inferior than, than the gift of prophecy, the spiritual gift of prophecy. And he's going to add another requirement for edification. I would say that the requirements so far have been that if we're going to edify, it cannot be done apart from love. Secondly, it cannot be done apart from intelligibility, clarity. And then thirdly, he's going to add another one. Edification can't be done apart from order or orderliness. There has to be order in what's going on. There cannot be chaos. So you could actually have intelligible chaos. That is, people are speaking intelligibly you can't quite understand what's going on because there's so many people talking. There's just chaos. Or it's just the order doesn't make a lot of sense. Something like that. 
So edification requires those three things, I think. Love, intelligibility, and order. So let's look at our text, beginning in verse 20. This is is the Word of God. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet evil in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. And the law, it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is, a, is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues... And ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his hearts of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated... The first one must keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. When we assemble, all things must be done for edification. Now, all this falls under the umbrella of glorifying God. So don't think, okay... We either glorify God or we edify the saints. What I'm saying is our main purpose always is to glorify God in everything that we do. So we could say that when we assemble, we must glorify God. But how do we glorify God? I would say when we assemble, we glorify God by doing all things with edification for the purpose of building up. That's what edify means. It means to build up other believers. So here he's going to... Get, he's going to contrast tongues and prophecy, these two gifts. One, they love the the gift of tongues. The other, they're not so concerned about. Paul's going to contrast these two and show the purpose, the result, and the goal of these two gifts. Alright, so let's look at these together. First, the purpose of tongues and prophecy. The purpose of tongues and prophecy. Verses 20 through 22. Paul begins in verse 20 with the word brethren. And uh, he seems to use this word very often here in 1 Corinthians, probably because he has so much rebuke and correction going on that he wants to remind them that he's, on their, he, he's still on their side. He still loves them. They're, they're still siblings in the faith, so to speak. And, and at the same time, he expects them to respond properly. So the purpose of tongues and prophecy is what he's talking about here in verses 20 through 22. And the first thing that we see is in verse 20 is that spiritual maturity is measured by comprehension rather than experience or not experience. Spiritual maturity is measured by comprehension, not experience. So I would say it this way. It's mind over emotion. So if you want to kind of um, 
if we want to put a dichotomy, a, a separation between these two parts of who we are, you know, mind, will, and emotions, but specifically these two are the ones that are on display, mind and emotions. Paul's been talking about these two. He would say that mind is more important than emotions. Not that emotions are unimportant or that we should never follow our emotions or that we should never express our emotions, but rather that the mind is the most important thing. When it comes to spiritual maturity, comprehension is the most important. Now, except when it comes to evil, you notice that little phrase there in verse 20. Um, he says, um, yet in evil be infants. So when it comes to evil things, you don't have to arouse your fascination with evil things or, or have to be steeped in evil in order to understand it. You know, I've heard some people say, well, you know, the only reason I got involved in this kind of thing is because I wanted to see what other people were having to deal with. And so I was trying to understand it from that perspective. No, we need to be infants when it comes to evil things. We don't need to know all the inner workings of why murderers you know, do what they do and, and what's their deepest thoughts and, and um, desires and that sort of thing. Um, instead, we are infants when it comes to evil. But with regard to thinking, with regard to discernment, we should be mature. Right? He gives a contrast here between children and adults. Children prefer not thinking, not deep thinking and, and trying to, to work through uh, things based on, um, based on intellect. Rather, they prefer amusement. And I'm thinking specifically of, of infants, but you see it even in elementary age kids as well, right? Children prefer amusement to careful thought. What does amusement mean? Right, the ah at the beginning of amusement is no or without, and then muse means to think, so without thinking. So an amusement park is a place where you can just enjoy the thrills and of entertainment without having to think, right? You don't have to, when you get done at the end of a day, unless you're mapping out your whole day and trying to make sure you get all the rides up all the right times, at the end of the day, you're not mentally exhausted when you've gone to an amusement park because you haven't had to think. It's, it's like you're vegging out, kind of, or, or sitting in front of the television. There's no thought there. Uh, it's just entertainment, right? And, um, and the Corinthians were enamored with more of the amusement rather than the careful thinking. So when it came to tongue speaking, it's like, this, like these kids, you know, they, they enjoy the brilliance or the shiny objects, the things that kind of glow, not a whole lot of thought there. Uh, as, as to careful think, as opposed to care, careful thinking, and the Corinthians kind of enjoy this tongue speaking. It's kind of got a little bit of a of a pull to it. It's it's enamoring. It's it's entertaining. But they were not concerned about careful thinking. And so I I think we can draw a principle out of this verse, and that is that we can discern who is spiritually mature or what kind of churches are spiritually mature based on what kind of things they hold they they hold dear right if the if the church is concerned about um thinking deeply on spiritual issues if the church is concerned about understanding the scriptures thinking deeply about theology then in many cases that church is going to be a mature mature kind of church now I say in many cases because you could know all the ins and outs of the Bible academically and never put into practice. So that would still be immature. They would, uh, they actually wouldn't be able to handle some of the deeper concepts because they're not obeying the easier ones. But 
in, in contrast, there are churches that think shallowly or are unconcerned about checking the claims that are made in the church against the Scriptures, and they are, by definition, immature. You see, if the church is working to carefully understand and apply the Bible to every aspect of the life, of their life and to ministry, then that is a mature church. That's what we ought to be seeking to be. A church that deeply thinks about the Scriptures because when it comes to thinking, we cannot be children. We need to be mature adults. Right? This goes along with Hebrews where it says, you know, I, by now I could have been giving you meat, but instead I have to feed you this milk. This very simpleton type theology here, which I could be getting a lot deeper, but you're stuck on this. Spiritual maturity is measured by comprehension, not experience. It's, it's measured by the, the, the deepness of, of our mind, how, how deep we're getting with our minds, rather than a kind of experience or emotion that's, that's generated. So, he gives the purpose of the gifts, and then uh, first the gifts of tongues. Uh, he's going to do that in verses 21 and 22. Then he's going to give the purpose of the gift of prophecy at the end of verse 22. And then he's going to give the results of both of these. What happens when the gifts of tongues are used without an interpreter? And then what happens when the gift of prophecy is used um, in the church? So, spiritual maturity is measured by comprehension, not experience. Secondly, unintelligible tongues are a sign of God's judgment. This, this section is a little bit more difficult to understand because Paul goes back to this Old Testament um, passage. And you know that because they're... In verse 21, you see all the capital letters, and that's just our translator's way of saying that this is alluded to, probably more, more likely quoted in the Old Testament. So if you have a, um, if you have a cross-reference margin in the middle of your Bible or off to the side, then you'll see that this comes from where? Is that what yours says? Yeah, what's the what's that first one? Because I didn't I didn't uh, come across that one. Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 28:49. Okay, yeah, the one I came across was Isaiah 28:11. So Deuteronomy 28:49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you shall not understand. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, so that would actually fit with what Paul's saying there at the beginning of verse. 21. In the law, it is written, right? The law is referring to the five books of Moses. So that would, Deuteronomy 28, 49 is a good cross-reference. But, but here, it seems to be a, more of a direct quotation from Isaiah 28, 11. So in that sense, he's using the law in terms of the Old Testament. And here, uh, Paul is appealing to Isaiah's prophecy where <clears throat> Isaiah is warning the southern tribes of Judah that you need to listen to the voice of the prophets. Because the prophets are coming with a warning from God that if you don't turn from your sins, you will be destroyed. And specifically, in the immediate context, it was that they would be led off into captivity. Some of them would die. Um, and the problem is that the southern tribe of Judah was not willing to listen. And, and the, the example, the negative example that Isaiah uses is Isaiah, is, excuse me, Israel, the northern tribe of Israel. He's saying, listen, I tried to warn Israel of coming judgment, but their leaders were so drunk and incapable of responding and hearing this message of judgment that instead God sent the message of judgment through foreign speakers. 
The Assyrians. Remember the Assyrians came in and wiped them out in 722 B.C. Led many of them off into captivity. And when the Assyrians arrived, they're not speaking Hebrew, right? They're speaking whatever language the Assyrians speak. A language that Israel can't understand. So now God's actually saying through the Assyrians, you are under judgment. And they can't even understand it. It's unintelligible. And so I think the connection that Paul's making here in verses 21 and 22 is that these unintelligible tongues, okay, that is this gift of tongues not connected with the gift of interpretation. That's fine. If you have tongues and interpretation, people understand it. It makes sense. But when there's unintelligible tongues going on in the church, then actually it, it, it doesn't fit, does it? You have a bunch of believers who are hearing this foreign language, unintelligible language, which is more a sign of God's judgment than it is, like it was for Israel, right? It's more of a sign of God's judgment than it is a sign of God's presence. See, if, if God's presence were there, then God would be speaking to them clearly, which He's going to get to when He gets to the, the, the gift of prophecy, right? With prophecy, there's actually communication of God's revelation to the people. In that sense, it's a sign that God's there. But if there's all this unintelligible tongues going on, no interpretation of it, it's more of a sign of God's judgment. And so it doesn't fit. Intelligible, mind-altering truth is a sign of God's presence. When people are being transformed by the Word of God, we know that God is here. Because transformation by the Word of God does not happen without the Spirit of God. It does not happen without the presence of God. Is that true? Okay, so the only way that change can happen is when God is here. So when change is happening, it means God's here. That's what we want to see here. We don't want to see unintelligible things going on in this church so that there's no edification. There's no one being built up. Everyone's stagnant in their faith. So it cannot be unintelligible like speaking in tongues without an interpreter. The end of verse 22 shows that prophecy is designed to edify the church. So in contrast to tongues, prophecy, it says there, is for a sign not to unbelievers but to those who believe. So prophesying uses propositional, intelligible truth to show people what is true about God and His revelation and it convinces people to believe it. Now, I'm arguing based on um, actually what he, Paul's going to say later, he's going to call these people prophets. I'm arguing that this is actually special revelation. This is not someone just reading the Old Testament and explaining it to the congregation. Okay, this is not, prophecy is not what I'm doing. Okay, that's not a spiritual gift that people, I believe, I don't believe people have the gift of prophecy today. I think that's one of the gifts that has ceased, 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, so I think prophecy was a special uh, gift that was used during that time to help authenticate the message of truth. But the point is, is that it was intelligible. It didn't require an interpreter. It benefited believers. Now, in verse 24, we're going to see that it also benefited unbelievers as well. But Paul's saying here that, listen, if we had to weight them or if we had to choose which one was better, tongues without an interpreter or prophecy, I would choose prophecy every time. Right? 
Remember what he said at the end of chapter, or um, the end of our, our discussion last time, verse 19, I'd rather speak five words in an understandable language than 10,000 words in a tongue that no one can understand. So, because these five words could actually, they could actually edify a person. These 10,000 words cannot. They can never edify a person without an interpreter. So, first, the purpose of tongues and prophecy. Second, the results of tongues and prophecy in verses 23 through 25. The result of tongues and prophecy. So here he's, he's still contrasting these two spiritual gifts. And what he says in verse 23 is that uninterrupted tongue speaking, or I'm sorry, uninterpreted tongue speaking confirms for unbelievers what they already think about Christians. Uninterpreted, unintelligible tongue speaking confirms in the mind of unbelievers what they already think about us, which is what? We're crazy. Look at the end of the verse. Will they not say that you are mad? So, do you know people like this? They already think the Christians are a little bit off, right? I mean, who avoids all of these pleasurable things that don't harm anyone, right? You have too many restrictions, you Christians. Or you think so differently than everybody else. You have an opinion about everything. Whatever the case is, they, they already think we're crazy. They walk into our service and all this tongue speaking is going on and they don't know what's going on. And they walk away saying, you're mad. You're, you're insane. You people are crazy. Instead of saying what they say if there were only prophecy going on, look at the end of verse 25, this is what they would say. He will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What a contrast, right? They walk into a service where all this tongue speaking is going on, unintelligible, and they say you're mad. And they walk away from a service that's filled with prophecy, and they say, surely God is in your midst. Or maybe they don't submit to that God, maybe they don't fall on their knees and worship Him, but certainly they can see that there's something different going on here. So, what are some of the results? Of, we already looked at the result for believers. For believers, they, if tongue speaking is going on without interpretation, then believers feel like they're foreigners in a foreign land. Right? That they're, they're walking into a place where I don't understand anything that's going on. And for unbelievers, they just think we're crazy. And in all of it, believers are not edified, unbelievers are not pointed to the truth, and God is not glorified. So what benefit really is there to having uninterpreted tongues speaking in a church service? In verses 24 and 25, Paul says that the explanation or revelation of propositional truth through prophecy results in edification to believers and it glorifies God. So when an unbeliever comes into a service or uh, he calls this person an ungifted man, so probably someone who doesn't have one of these showy gifts like they have, probably a believer, but he doesn't have one of these showy gifts like tongue speaking or prophecy. And if they listen to prophecy being spoken, then they are convicted of their sin. And even an unbeliever says there. If an unbeliever could be convicted about his sin because he actually understands propositional truth that's being proclaimed. 
He's convicted of a sin, verse 24. The sin is exposed, verse 25. And then even the sinner is converted at the end of verse 25. He falls on his face and worships God. And he rightly sees that God is present. So, clearly, the spiritual gift of prophecy is superior to the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. So what should the Corinthians do? What should they do? The Corinthians needed to recognize that what Paul is saying is true. They needed to act like adults, not children. They needed to use their brains to engage their brains to consider what God was saying to the church. What did they need to to wake up about spiritually? And so Paul gives in verses 26 through 33 the goal of tongues and prophecy. He begins with an introduction here in verse 26. What is the outcome then, brother? What do we make of all this? Again, he uses that word brethren to remind them that he still loves them. He's still on their side. When you assemble, each has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. So it sounds like he's kind of listing all these things that they kind of throw in to the service and it seems like it's almost spontaneous. Like one person throws out a hymn, another person throws out an interpretation, another person throws out a tongue speaking. It's kind of like all happening at the same time is just a lot of chaos and, un, uh, and, and, and lack of clarity. And the result is that no one is edified. Everything's chaotic. And so here's the maxim by which they must live and by which we must live. At the end of verse 26. Do all things for edification. Let all things be done for edification. So we want to make our goal in glorifying God through our worship service to exalt Christ, obviously. But the way that we do that is by seeking to edify the people who are, who are, who are in attendance. We want each, people, each person to, to grow up in his or her faith. And if that's going to happen, then there needs to be clarity, intelligibility, and there has to be order. You have to have clarity and order. It's not about your reputation. It's not about my reputation. It's not about how highly regarded you are or how highly regarded I am among other people. It's about what is maximally beneficial to building up the faith of believers. It's all about edification. And this is exactly what he's been saying throughout this text. We looked at these verses last week, but let me just show you them again, just to remind you. Verse 3, One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Verse five, the one, or verse 4, the end of verse 4, But one who prophesies edifies the church. At the end of verse 5, The one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church... Uh, I'm sorry, I started a little too late. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Verse 12, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Verse 17, For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Implication doesn't help. Verse 18, I I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others, so I may build them up, edify them through propositional truth. So it's all about edification. 
So how does that apply to tongue speaking? For the Corinthians, how can tongues, tongue speaking be edifying? Paul says, here's how it works. You have to have these three, these three rules have to be in place if, if tongue speaking is going to be edifying. Number one, uh, don't have them there for you, but you can see them in the text. Actually, why don't you help me find them? Verse 27, verses 27 and 28. What's the first rule in order for tongues to be edifying? Okay, so two or three. And I think the idea here is not two or three all at the same time. It wouldn't be like, you know, three people stand up, they're all speaking tongues at the same time. He's going to say later, each in turn. Uh, but, but instead, three people max per service. We don't need a hundred people getting up to speak in tongues. Okay, first rule, two or three in a given service. Second rule, in the middle of verse 27. Okay, that's, that's uh, at the end of verse 27. One must interpret. So, it can only be two or three. There has to be an interpreter and middle of verse 27. One at a time. One at a time. So, those three rules must be in place in order for tongue speaking to be edifying. So, the underlying rule is that Whenever you use your spiritual gift, do do so with self-control. Now, this is diametrically opposed to how tongue speaking is used today, from what I understand. Okay, tongue speaking today tends to be more spontaneous, emotional, ecstatic. It's kind of like, well, I got the word from God, so I have to burst it out, and so it just kind of comes out almost like vomit. Right? Like, you can't hold it back. It's got to come out now. And what Paul's saying is control yourself. I mean, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Even when it comes to you using your spiritual gift, you need to be under control. Make sure you're not talking over people. Right? That's why it says one at a time. What if the Holy Spirit came to three people at once to give them a tongue and there was an interpreter there They don't all three speak at once. They do it with order and intelligibility. Paul says, it's not about spontaneous, uncontrolled outbursts. You need to be careful. Let me show you this um, in verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if there is no interpreter, you need to hold back Right? That it's not tongue speaking is not like vomit. It doesn't just come out. You need to hold it back. You actually have that ability to control yourself. Instead, do it in private. I don't think he's saying, you know, you're sitting there in your little pew, you got the tongues coming, and just have your little private worship service right there with you speaking in tongues to yourself. No, I think he's what he's saying is go home. And because you don't have an interpreter or because you've already you know, violated some other of the rules, like maybe there's already been three people that have already talked, save it for when you're alone with God. Do it in private. Use careful, thoughtful action. I mean, think about the other gifts of the Spirit that there are. They're not spontaneous gifts. They, they usually take careful thought. Think about the gift of teaching, for example. 
right? The, a person who teaches doesn't just build up all this understanding about a text and then just dump it all out all at once. They carefully think about it and then they release it, we could say, at the right time, at the appropriate time, in the appropriate manner. That's the same thing with tongues. We tend to think more of tongues as some uncontrolled response, like almost like they're possessed or something. And the tongues come out. And that's why I think this whole modern Pentecostal movement is, is largely a joke. Right? At least the tongues part of it. Again, I think there, are, um, there is the gospel preached, being preached in many of these churches. Um, but, but as far as the tongues and, and all that emotionalism, that's not of God. So those are the rules for tongue speaking. In verse, verses 29 to 31, we have four rules for prophecy. What are they? What's the first one? Verse 29. Okay, same thing. Two or three prophets. Again, I don't think this meaning at the same time. That would not be intelligible. That would not be orderly. If you've got three people who have received a revelation, a direct revelation from God, give them an opportunity to speak. There's the first rule. Second. It's at the end of verse 29. Okay, so the others there are to pass judgment. There's some debate in the, um, among scholars as to what this is. could be referring to other prophets. You know, if the prophets have this ability to be able to discern what is true. But it seems to me in the context that, the, that Paul's wanting all the believers in the church to get behind this and recognize that they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They have the ability to discern what is true and what is false based on what has been received from them by the apostles and based on the text of Scripture that they possess, the Old Testament. So I think this is referring to more than just the prophets in the church. So when prophecy happens, only two or three people in a given service, when it happens, it needs to be judged by the church. The congregation needs to... Just like you would, again, what I'm doing on Sunday or what I'm doing right now is not prophecy uh, in the, in the uh, most technical sense. Okay? But, but in, this, in a similar way, you test my teaching or my preaching against what is true. You have that ability because you have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have the ability to discern what is true. So the third one is found in verse 30. What's the third rule for prophecy if it's going to be edifying? Okay, good. That's exactly how I put it. Each prophecy must be done with order. So, if there's a revelation going on and someone else is seated, it sounds like that they're ready to give their prophecy, you recognize that your time is kind of done. Okay, recognize someone else needs to get up and, and also say something. So, it seems like there's some kind of order. Don't just burst out or don't just keep talking beyond uh, you know, what your time period ought to be. Move on. Let, let the other person have an opportunity. So it seems like orderliness there. Good. Number four is in, in the beginning of verse 31. If prophecy is going to be edifying, two or three, it must be evaluated by the congregation to make sure it's true. It must be done with order and then what? One at a time. Same as tongues, Right? So it sounds like what was happening in the church at Corinth is that people were just talking over each other. It was completely chaotic. 
All sorts of spiritual gifts are being used at the same time, not with the interest of anyone else's concern or, or ability to understand. It was complete chaos. It's like one at a time. This is how it's going to be edifying. Notice that at the end of verse 31, it, it says as much, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. So when you're doing it one at a time, when there's intelligibility, when there's orderliness, then people can actually understand and they can be encouraged. They can, they can understand. They can be warned. So reason for the rules. Uh, we already looked at one at the end of verse 31. I don't know if I... Yeah, I do have that. Um, ministry of the Word must help the saints. So the reason for the rule is so that people can actually be exhorted by it. And then the ministry of the Word must be in harmony with the Spirit. It, it has to be from the Spirit, verses 32 and 33. So this is another difficult verse here in 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. The spirits of prophets. So the spirits there, small letter S there, referring to the individual internal person of the prophets, when they're trying to decide whether or not they should say something, right? they need to recognize that it's, it needs to submit to the church as a whole, but the prophets specifically. And, and I would just say this goes back to the idea of care and order. In other words, you prophets control your spirits. Even if the Holy Spirit's the one who gave you the revelation, you need to control the gate of it. So don't just burst out in a way that's disorderly, chaotic, or unintelligible. Why? Well, verse 33 tells us that orderliness and the use of spiritual gifts is rooted in what? Orderliness, orderliness and the use of spiritual gifts is rooted in... How about the God of peace? Right? The, the character of God. The reason that we need to do things with order in the assembly of believers, and I think by extension in other places in life as well, but, but specifically we're talking about the church here, in the assembly. Orderliness and the use of spiritual gifts is rooted in the character of God. Anything that results in chaos or confusion is not from God. God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of chaos. Again, this implies that the Corinthian church had become a place of confusion. Which is why verse 23 says, when you come together, you're all speaking in tongues and these people walk in and they say, these people are crazy. The last phrase in verse 33 goes along with the next section. Paul's going to say, he's going to ask them, are you so elite that the message from God only came to you? And that this supposed message of God is opposed to the message from the Apostle? And it's actually opposed to what the other churches are doing? And so that's why he says at the end of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, you need to recognize that this is not... You don't have some private revelation that is in conflict with the revelation that God has given to me and the revelation that has been received by the rest of the churches. That doesn't make sense. You're not some kind of a spiritual elite, so we'll get into that next week. Don't want to preach next week's sermon too early. All right. Three 
principles to consider. Number one, if our services are going to honor God, then all of our worship must be edifying. If our services are going to honor God, then all of our worship must be edifying. So we should strive for this. We shouldn't expect that it's going to happen magically or automatically. That we can just kind of show up, things kind of come together, and hey, everybody's edified. We read a couple texts of Scripture, we choose a couple random songs, and read a couple random passages, talk about what we think about it, and all go home and we're edified. Instead, we need to strive for edifying, intelligible, and orderly worship services. God-honoring worship, I think, does all those things. And that means that everything in the service must be understandable and orderly as opposed to unintelligible and chaotic. So if there are aspects of our service where we're just like, what just happened there? What was going on there? I, I didn't understand or... Then, then we need to we need to we need to button that up, don't we? Make sure that everything that we're doing is intelligible and orderly. By application, that means each one of us must consider that what we can do to help promote edification in the church. What I'm talking about now is not the different parts of the service that we see in our bulletin on, in the in the front cover, right? What I'm talking about now is I'm saying what can we do to help promote edification in the church? What can we do to help provoke one another to love and good works? Another good way to describe edification. Hebrews chapter 10. When I come together, what can I do to help provoke someone else to love and good works? Part of it, I think, is in it, part of the way that we encourage one another is simply by showing up. Aren't you encouraged that when you come to church, you're not the only one there? Or that you're not just one among five people? but that you're actually joining together with other people who are as serious about truth and righteousness. So you're actually encouraged when people show up to the service, aren't you? And so I, I recognize I'm speaking to the choir here, but, um, but, but just church attendance is one way to encourage other believers. It sounds really simple, but it, it's actually very encouraging when people show up. Part of encouraging is taking part in the singing. Right? Ephesians 5 says, Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and mel making melody in your heart to the Lord. But you're speaking to one another. You're edifying one another through your singing. As you lift up your voice in praise with some of these psalms that we sing or hymns or spiritual songs, and you actually encourage other believers. I mean, have you ever just kind of quieted down a little bit? and you're singing and listen to other people sing and, and have been moved emotionally by the fact that there are other people in here who may be going through some trials and they're saying, um, they're saying something like, Arise, my soul, arise. Or they're saying, you know, um, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on my side. You hear other people singing that and, and that's encouraging, isn't it? It's edifying to you. So join in the singing. Be here, join the singing. Obviously, give. You know, we can encourage one another by just saying, listen, I'm so confident that, that God commands me and expects me to give to His work, and I've committed myself to giving to this work, that I'm going to join in giving. You're not the only one doing it, and so you see other people contributing that way, and that's encouraging. Another part of 
edifying other people is listening and responding with obedience. I mean, you know who's there when the Word of God is being preached. And so when you see people that are actually paying attention and then they're actually thinking through these things and responding with obedience, that's encouraging to you because you recognize that they believe that this gospel is real and that it's transforming and that it's worth following. That's encouraging to you. It's, it's edifying to you, isn't it? And then, of course, personal conversation. Right? You, you meet with people afterwards or before and you just talk with them. Not formally, you know, listen, i got these three things I want to talk to you about. Um, but, but informally, as you're working through some things or some, some area of difficulty comes up in life and, and you're just there to encourage. And you know people like this that are just naturally good at this, but I think we all need to be better at it. it because if you are thinking about what you can get out of the service primarily when you come to church, if you're thinking primarily about how you feel when you are done, then maybe you are more childish and you're thinking kind of like the Corinthians. Mature Christians engage their minds, understand what the services are about, and contribute to the overall spiritual well-being of the church by seeking and actually following through on edifying one another. If our services are going to be glorifying to God, then we must be edifying in all things. And if we're going to be maximally, maximally edifying, then all of our worship should flow from the Scriptures. All of our worship should flow from the Scriptures. We could just say it this way, that we should be Bible-centered. Worship services are designed primarily for believers to gather together to worship the Almighty God. And that means that every aspect of our worship should be in line with His revealed truth, His revelation. So our songs must be truthful songs, Bible-based songs, not designed primarily to appeal to our emotions or to make us feel good about ourselves, but primarily to relay propositional truth so that we can be teaching one another and admonishing one another with our songs. Our prayers must be Bible-centered. They must be sourced in the truth from the Word of God. Our preaching, of course, and our response to it must be based on the text of Scripture, not on what we want the text to say. We're not forcing our ideas onto the text. We're drawing God's truth out of it. So we need to make sure that our worship flows from the Scripture. And then, thirdly, third principle, God expects our services to be intelligible and orderly. If we're going to have edifying services, we need to be intelligible with what is being communicated and orderly. We need to do this first because God is a God of intelligence and order, not nonsense and chaos. Second, because God is honored when believers are edified. And third, there's a possibility that unbelievers could be in our service. And we don't want them walking away saying those people are crazy and so is their God. We want them to walk away saying, surely God was in this place. I don't know all of what that means. I don't know what the next step is for me. But I can tell that God was in that place. And that leads me to just remind you that it is tempting to try to accommodate the services to, to try to reach as many people as possible. But chaos and lack of clarity and chameleon theology are not the way to bring people to Christ. It also might be tempting to showboat or, or use our showy gifts 
so that other people can see how great we are, how gifted we are. But none of that will bring people to Christ either. Isn't it amazing that these miraculous gifts had no power to turn people to Christ? That is, this miraculous gift of, of speaking in tongues, apart from an interpreter, did nothing to bring people to Christ. Instead, what did was the proclaimed Word of God. You see that all throughout the book of Acts. Miracles, miracles, miracles. People still don't respond. Preaching the Word of God, people respond. Not always. But that's the only way they can respond is when the Word of God is proclaimed. We might like to think that if we could just prove to people that our faith is real by you know, showing them a miracle then they would be saved. But miracles don't prove anything to unbelievers. They're so steeped in their hardness that they would not come to Christ even if someone rose from the dead right in front of their eyes. That's how blinded they are spiritually. The only thing that will take the scales from their eyes is the preached Word of God. And so we need to make sure that every time we come together, there is intelligibility, clarity, and orderliness so that believers are edified and unbelievers can actually have the possibility of responding with repentance. When we assemble, all things must be done for the glory of God and the edification of believers. And that demands that the elements of our worship services are intelligible and orderly.